0: Welcome, everyone. This is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. My name is Brent Coolman. I'm here with Adam Oline and Clint Poppy. We uh, last week we were, boy, we had quite a uh, Table Talk discussion about uh, the numbering of the commandments, uh, the iconoclast, et cetera. And I want to pick up on that again because I mentioned a book. I asked you guys if you've got this book by. Uh, The woman.
1: Yeah, I apologize, Pastor. I had every intention after our last program to run right out and buy it, (laughs) and I just, I just haven't had the time to do it.
0: Well, bottom line, you know what that means, folks. That means he did not get permission from somebody to buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) Because if he does spend more money on books, if you know Pastor Poppy, he's a bookophile, a bibliophile. He buys books by the ton, and there's no doubt. uh, uh, there's been a kibosh on that. No, I'm just joking, okay? Yeah. Again, the book is written by Bridget Heal. She teaches in Scotland at St. Andrews University. And the name of the book is A Magnificent Faith, Art, and Identity in Lutheran Germany. It's it's well worth purchasing, no matter what the price, if you're interested in this topic. So again, at the time of the Reformation, you had these icon- iconoclasts. They got rid of all the statues, all the uh, stained glass windows, all the crucifixes, even they, they bashed the organs in. I mean, it was just unbelievable because they said that that broke the commandment of having no graven images. Well, um, Luther didn't go along with that. And that, this starts early in the 1520s. And uh, so Luther's opposition to Karlstadt, who would be like the modern-day Reformed folks, it, uh, it bore rich fruit. In Lutheran church building and decoration, um, which would I, I would I would suggest which gave the proper middle way between the excesses of Rome and the barrenness of the uh, Anabaptist well, well formed very well okay said. all right and so what you have e- even in in Wittenberg you have these two gentlemen and you'll know their names Cronach you had Lucas Cronach senior and you had Lucas Cronach junior who worked in Wittenberg. And they were one of the first converts to the Reformation, by the way. And uh, you can look Mm -hmm. at their artwork online, anybody who wants to do this. But they they did a lot of good following Luther's lead on this and opposing Karlstadt and the Iconoclasts. Point being this, is that Lutherans would make the confession of the biblical reformational faith through the medium of visual beauty, if you will. And this not only appealed to intellectuals in, in the Reformation. You know, people say, well, you know, they were just highbrow intellectual people, you know, and that they just didn't know any better. No, it's, it's a lot more than that. Uh, the point was is they, they used artwork that we've been talking about that would, that would strike people with the eye and not just the, the highbrow people, but the people, the ordinary person in the pew, All levels of society, then, would be impacted by this. And one of the big things was a crucifix. The crucifix became the expression of Lutheran distinctiveness as opposed to the Reformed. And in this book by Heal, A Magnificent Faith, she gives rich illustrations that demonstrate her thesis, including a photograph of a silver crucifix that adorned miners' coffins in funeral processions that were held in Freiburg in one of the parts of rural Saxony. And when the when the commander of a marauding imperial army confiscated the treasured crucifix during the Thirty Years' War, you know what the miners did? They replaced it. This is how important really? this is hmm. for the Lutherans. Okay. Now the the Reformed princes when they when they said, you know, we're not gonna be Lutheran anymore in this territory, we're gonna be reformed. Um, there were Lutheran pushbacks. You know, there were. The Lutherans said, No, 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 we're not gonna go with this. So for let me give an example. And again, this is this is from Heal's book, and and again I'm pushing the book to emphasize what we're talking about here on our program. After being gutted under the reformed convert, Landgrave Moritz of Hesse Castle, in sixteen oh five Marburg's Marienkirche, that would be Mary Church, was restored for Lutheran worship when the city and parts of the territory fell to a Lutheran member of the dynasty in 1624. The glorious high altar and retable are featured on page 171 of the books, or pardon me, 71 of the book. And with this uh, high altar, you've got Mary and John. Sound familiar? Yes, You have Mary and John who stand on each side of the crucified Jesus. And as you mentioned last week, Adam, an angel collects the Lord's blood in a chalice. Uh, (laughs) You see, and so this, this is a hermeneutic of the eye. In other words, that high altar with Mary and John standing before the crucified Jesus and an angel collecting the blood of Jesus in a chalice teaches that when you come to communion, you are receiving the very blood of the crucified Christ. And it's not just the the blood of a man, but it's the blood of God himself that only atoned for sin. And that's why when you come to communion, you receive with your mouth the very body and blood of Christ according to his promise that it's given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you don't believe that, guess what gets removed in your church? The crucifix. Mary, John, the angel with the chalice collecting. the, And that's precisely what the Reformed and what the iconoclasts did. Lutherans didn't do that. Are you following this? Absolutely. You, you're wanting to say something. Well, th-
2: even uh, lots of times those churches where you have that painting, the chalice matches the chalice that you drink uh, from when you go up to the Lord's Supper. So you can make that connection even more clearly that this very chalice that's painted collecting Christ's blood is the same that I am drinking from. And, and um, even little
1: children can make that connection. Right. Yep. They, yep. Don't, they don't need a theological a degree or pedigree
0: for that. Little right. children can understand this. Right. Right. So I just wanted to push that for folks. I think this would be a helpful corrective uh, <laughs> to the culture in which we live, which is essentially iconoclastic in America. I mean, it's rare it's rare to go to a Lutheran church these days and find what you find in Germany with these high altars, crucifix, and what I just described. Uh, it's very rare to find that in the United States because that, that would appear to be too, you know, we've said this a million times. But we need to recover this hermeneutic of the eye, if you will, if I can talk like that.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, I think we should also put in uh, stained glass windows uh, back in the olden days. Uh, Congregations uh, would would uh, scrimp and save. Think of all the uh, stained glass windows that were purchased and put in during the Great Depression or during the Dust Bowl years. Uh, this is how important it was for Lutheran Christians yeah. to teach right. that hermeneutic of the eye. Right. And nowadays, these things are are mocked. They're looked down upon. They uh, they are not significant in any way, shape, or form in the in the life of most congregations growing up at uh, in my home congregation in St. Paul West Point long narrow sanctuary and on one side of the church is a series of oh six or eight stained glass windows that depict the life of Paul from his days as Saul uh, and the stoning of Stephen all the way to the beheading Hmm. of Paul on the end. And then on the other side of the sanctuary, it had a picture beginning with uh, evil and sin, then baptismal regeneration, ending with the sleep of death for the believer and life everlasting. So it was the life of St. Paul on one side and the life of a member of St. Paul (laughs) on the other side. And when I was a little kid, I was just riveted. I was riveted to these. I couldn't wait to ask the pastor, what does this mean? What does that mean? Or when you would hear something in a sermon that connected to one of those windows. Uh, it, it, was,
0: it was so, so faith edifying for me. And the this hermeneutic gets, of the eye. And this, just so people don't misunderstand, Adam, I'm going to ask you a question. Do we have to have these things? No, there's no law that See, says that's we Because that's how have people will hear what we're talking right. about. That really Lutheran, yeah, that if you don't, you're not
1: really a Lutheran. You're not right. really a Christian.
2: But but I think uh, today we have no idea that what's happening in the sanctuary is holy. Because uh, if we build a new church today, we, what do we do? We think cost effectiveness. So we make it a machine shed and uh, plain walls in there and uh, some chairs in there. And but it, when can we, it, it can be We're that it can. We're free yes. to do that. Yes. But if we can teach through the things on the walls and on the altar and all that, that this is something special that's happening here, that heaven, which is the most glorious place you can imagine, is coming down to earth in the word and in the sacrament. And you can convey that idea through beauty and uh, through, you talked about organs, through um, the sound and singing that's happening and, and reflect heaven on earth, in every part of what's going on in the
0: sanctuary, I think that is beneficial for the member of the church. Right, and so for a Lutheran, uh, the argument would be, no, we don't have to do these things, but because of what the Bible teaches about what's going on in the divine service, we will reflect this so that it is taught all the more, Mm -hmm. not just orally into our ears, but even visually into our eyes. Because we are creatures. And you have both ears and eyes. And God works through both. (laughs) You see. (laughs) How how often don't we
1: use the phrase seeing is believing? And we know that God's word teaches us that faith comes through hearing. But uh, blessed are the eyes of those who see, Um, our eyes are opened. Uh, the scales fell from the eyes of Saul when God called him to be Paul. So, so we have many of these uh, directives in Scripture that teach us to look upon the things that God has given us. Yeah, that we, is, we that don't is want to fall into, yeah,
0: we don't want to fall into the error of Gnosticism. You see, and that that's that's a that's a big concern. All right, I think we've uh, pushed this as as much as we want, <laughs> huh?
1: Uh, yeah, we we well much more than you thought. Well, um, yeah, I know, you know true con, true confessions here. <laughs> you wondered how how we would get more than a minute or two out of this whole topic. When I uh, oh, it got I, my juices flowing once when we I start when I suggested the numbering of the commandments. But um, wh- one last thing, you know, we're getting a little close to our time break on our segment here. Maybe maybe we could uh, alert people that when they go because this this whole graven image thing started out by talking about the numbering of the commandments. When people go to their Christian bookstore, which nine times out of ten is Reformed or Evangelical, not Roman Catholic or Lutheran, because we just don't have many of those kind of stores out there, when they buy their picture, their plaque, their t-shirt, their hat of the Ten Commandments, it's more than likely going to reflect the reformed right. and evangelical numbering and not the Lutheran slash Roman Catholic yeah. numbering. And so people just might want to be aware of that and they might be confused if they pick something up like that, or if they get a gift, this is, this has happened to me as pastor several times. I've gotten gifts that display the 10 commandments
0: and they've got the
1: wrong numbering on them. Well, they have a different numbering, don't they? That's yeah. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> wrong according to my Lutheran catechism. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we, 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 were, we, we got off on that tangent. We were talking about the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And a week or two ago, I teased everybody saying, you know, we've grown up in an environment where most Christians in this area, especially the rural area of Nebraska, have been taught that you can't do any work at all on a Sunday because if you, if you get out in the field and you till or if you get in your combine and harvest, you break that commandment. So when we come back from the break, we do want to talk about that. So hang on tight.
1: So hold my hand, I'll walk with you, my dear The stars creak, as you sleep, it's keeping
2: me awake
0: It's the house telling you to close your eyes It's so Welcome back, everybody. Again, this is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. I'm Brent Kuhlman. I'm here with Adam O'Lean and Clint Poppy. Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So can you work on a Sunday or not? And the answer is, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I know that's going to be a shocker to most of us, but, yeah, you can. Because keeping the Sabbath day holy is all about, first and foremost, going to hear the word of God. God's most holy word, that's preached. And that's in, that's the word in which God gives you a death blow through his word of law that destroys and kills you, the sinner. And then through the promise and delivery of the forgiveness of sins, he bestows the new life of faith in Christ Jesus. So when you hear the pastor say, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or when you go to communion and Jesus says, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, you are receiving The most holy word of God that actually then holies you. And that's keeping the Sabbath day holy. That is to say, when you let God do his work on you, his salvific delivery of his Good Friday forgiveness that then holies you. So the church sets aside time on Sundays because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. And uh, we take an hour or two to hear his word, both preached and sacramental. Okay. And that's keeping the Sabbath day holy. So, you know, you could, you could do some work before the church service, or you could do some work after the church service. You're not breaking the third commandment. However, you would break the, the commandment if you don't go to hear God's word, uh, et cetera. Make sense? That's what,
2: what I was just about to ask. Yeah. I was about to say, you, you can work on a Sunday, but what if uh, your work is during the time of the divine service? Well,
0: that's why the church then it sets aside other times for these people. Okay, well, how about Saturday night? How about Wednesday night? You can't. You you have a job that uh, you work on Sunday mornings. You can't get it done. All right, we'll uh, we'll have other services for you. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, because that's what the Christian will want. You see, and you know we have people because the old Adam is strong in
1: all of us. We have people that'll use this as an excuse. Um, you know, of course, I can work on Sunday. That uh, working on Sunday alone is not a sin. And I guess what I'm thinking about here is the, uh, the Sabbath laws and what they evolved into in the Old Testament where people would come up with intricate kind of formulas, like you could pick up so many sticks on a Sabbath and you wouldn't break the Sabbath. But if you picked up one more stick, you did break the Sabbath. You could take so many steps away uh, from your home or whatever. And we have the teaching of Jesus that uh, was Sabbath made for the man or man for the Sabbath, you know, and so we've got that whole thing going on here too. But if I decide that I'm going to take a day off work so that I can go to the big game or go sit in the duck blind or on the fishing boat or get my ultimate tea time, and then I make up for that by working on Sunday and completely missing God's word and uh, the divine service, then that's not what we're talking about here because that would be despising God's word. Right, Pastor? Yeah,
2: right you were uh, talking about the the way it had become at the time of Christ and even in the the Jewish faith today i was in israel at the western wall on a sabbath day on a saturday And uh, as you're going through the security to go to the Western Wall, uh, they tell you, you can't take a picture of the Western Wall today because it's the Sabbath day, and that's work. They have signs up everywhere that say, no cameras out because it's Sabbath day. That's work. The next day on Sunday, then you're free to take as many pictures as you want to, but not on the Sabbath day because that
0: would be a violation of it. See, and the the gift of the Lutheran Reformation, the recovery of the biblical teaching on this commandment is that Keeping the Sabbath day is all about God speaking and giving to the unholy sinner his, namely Christ's, perfection, righteousness, purity, and holiness through the gospel. And so it's all the Lord's doing. It's all the Lord's giving. And Luther had this Latin phrase that uh, I would encourage you all to learn. It's called vita passiva. Vita means life. Passiva, that's our English passive. It's the passive life. Namely, you suffer. <laughs> it's, don't misunderstand when I say suffer, because you hear the word suffer and you think pain, agony, etc. But I'm talking about it in a different way. When you come to church, you suffer the word of God. That is to say, the Lord serves you with Christ's holiness in his word and sacraments. So I'm going to repeat this so there's no misunderstanding. Keeping the Sabbath day holy is all about God giving and sharing his holiness with you through his most holy word. So you remember there's this uh, uh, this Roman who said, uh, Romans and countrymen, lend me your ear. That's that's exactly what's going on when you come to church, whether it's on a Sunday, a Saturday, Wednesday, doesn't matter. Tuesday morning, Friday night.
1: It doesn't matter. Uh, Pastor, I have a question for you and uh, you know we have we have said repeatedly that Christ has fulfilled the law for us right and sabbath means rest the way we're looking at here not the word sabbath where we're talking about uh, armies or legions of angels but right rest. now you
0: now if, if people aren't following you you're making a distinction pay very careful attention to the distinction you just made with words sabbath S-A-B-B-A-T-H, and then you said Sabaoth. Sabaoth. And and so Sabaoth is the Hebrew word for God of armies. Armies,
1: hosts. Yep. It's often translated. Right. So when we're talking about the Sabbath and rest, properly understood here, um, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus, by his rest in the tomb... Has sanctified the graves of all saints. We say this at our committal service. Right? How how would you uh, explain or teach that Sabbath rest
0: being fulfilled in Jesus to your people in light of the third commandment? Well, I, I we we talked about this. I remember cor- correctly a few weeks ago, and and I'll start again with uh, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians when he says that all of God's promise promises are yes or amen in Christ, which fits with what Jesus himself teaches in Luke 24, that everything that was written in Moses, the prophets, and even the Psalms is about me. And so the hermeneutic of the New Testament is that we read the Old Testament as being totally and completely filled in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes sabbath day that includes temple that includes high priest that includes sacrificial system that includes the promise of land etc all the promises that god made to his people in the old testament are now fulfilled so in the old testament the promise of rest with regard to sabbath to hear the word of god to god bless you is now fulfilled in christ and so any day of the week in which god's christ's word is preached that sabbath day rest okay
1: thank you that i think that in case there was anybody that was
0: uh questioning or confused with that you you uh, and articulated that very well. one final point on this this is so if you're if you're picking up what i'm throwing down now you will understand what jesus means when he says come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest that happens when you come to church and you die to your sin through the preaching of the law and you are raised to new life and faith in Jesus Christ through the giving and the preaching of the gospel in its word form and sacramental form. So you are at rest, body and soul. Yeah. And that's and so <laughs> that, what's interesting is you mentioned the, uh, the Easter Saturday. You know, the, Jesus is buried in the tomb. And you mentioned the committal service. You know, it's interesting that when you read Genesis, after God finishes his work of creation, he rests. rests. And so then when god redeems his fallen creation through the work of the lord jesus christ on the cross then he rests in the tomb and again that's when we find sabbath day rest in christ the fulfillment of all of this and thus thus when you're baptized you're baptized into christ's death <laughs> and that's that's why uh, that's why when you c- commit someone to the ground in burial you're putting, them, you're putting them to bed like Jesus was put to bed <laughs> after he died. Why? In the full anticipation and belief that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will you. People who are asleep, wake up. And, and that's exactly what we have to look forward to in the and, resurrection. And just, just as Jesus rested in the tomb, so we commit Christians who are baptized in God's name, we commit them into a tomb or a grave for rest, safekeeping, if you will, rest for the resurrection of the body. Okay? Amen. So uh, I hope that's helpful for people. So what does God want? Adam, you were going to say something. I'm sorry. Well,
2: I was just going to say, you know, uh, in case you don't want to take our word for it, we do have St. Paul says it twice uh, in Romans 14. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Or again in Galatians 4, you observe days and months and seasons and years I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Uh, it's not the day, it's yeah. the Lord yeah. that matters.
0: And he, he addresses this in Colossians, which we looked up a That's few right. weeks ago as well. Don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or certain kinds of days, including the Sabbath. So let's, let's push this further. What does God want in the third commandment? <laughs> he, wants, he wants you to shut up. That's he, first and foremost. This is vita passiva. He wants to do his work on you and to you through his word to die to your old adam and rest like when he told elijah remember in the old testament be still be still so that elijah could finally instead of listening to himself you know i'm the only one left you know i'm the only faithful one in israel god said shut up elijah shut up and be still i'm going to tell you something now now listen to what i have to say so that's what god wants in the third commandment. okay which goes contrary to what
2: so many people think church is about. They want to serve on this or that. They want to be in this band or in this choir. They think it's all about the things they're doing. It's so counterintuitive to us Americans that the most important job you can do in church is to sit and listen to the word as it's preached and delivered. And yeah. see, this
0: again is the gift of the Lutheran Reformation that had that was recovered, and we have lost it. And find, thanks be to God we're recovering it again. Is that... Uh, First and foremost, when you come to church and to be church, see this, this is connected when you go to church and to be church, the body of Christ, first and foremost is to be passive, to let God speak and to let God do and give. Now that's a, that's a no brainer for Lutherans, but for non-Lutherans, that is so scandalous because they hear that and they say, so we don't do anything. Well, not, not right away not right away. You first let God speak, and we listen. You let God give, and we receive. And so his words and his giving, then they enliven us then to do stuff. And in the divine service, it would be prayer, praise, thanksgiving, the confession of the faith, the confession of Christ's name, etc. And then it moves us into our vocations, God's good use of us as fathers, mothers, citizens, etc., but you see, you've got, to, you've got to get the distinctions right. It's first being given to and talked to, and then you're active. But see, it's so scandalous for non-Lutherans because they think going to church is, I'm here to do something first. By the way, this connects too with prayer. The divine service of time, a third commandment, prayer, etc. cetera. Uh, when you come to the divine service, to have it proper, you have to, have, you have to let God speak first. You have to. Otherwise, you're going to get it wrong all the time.
2: That's why in the Catechism Table of Duties, Luther calls us hearers.
0: And the Chemnitz says, you know, if you want to define the church, you've got a mouth. God uses a mouth to speak his word. And then you've got a bunch of ears out there that are listening to it. And then, of course, our ears, which goes into the word that goes into our ears, goes into our hearts. And then with our hands and our mouth, we go out into our vocations and we do work. And the church does work, too, corporately as well does mission work together etc cetera, etc cetera. and and god ultimately wants our heart
1: and he gets our heart through our ears right and that's why he wants us to gladly hear and learn the word of god because
0: in god's word there's life yeah and life everlasting i've got tons more to say on the third commandment so when we come back next week we'll say more about this in the meantime stay lutheran my friends.